Hello and welcome to Minor Rex. I'm Charlie. Today I'm joined by Angelo and Ariana and David as we talk today about celebrity chefs and food culture, and particularly the film The Menu, which is a dark comedy released in 2022 starring Ralph Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. What did y'all think of the menu? And I will say, I have not seen anything other than a trailer, so keep spoilers to a minimum. (laughs) I definitely agree. We want to keep spoilers to a minimum because it's the type of movie that has a lot of twists and turns that you don't necessarily see coming. And so we don't want to ruin that for people. With that said, I just watched it and I really enjoyed the dark comedy aspect of it. It was really kind of a satire of cooking shows, and it was really fun to see them kind of make fun of what we're going to talk about in seriousness. Um, And that's what I really enjoyed about it. It's definitely a very on-the-nose satire, but that's what I kind of like about it. It it adds to the whole uh, just how absurd the premise is and how uh, the absurdity keeps building throughout the movie. Yeah. I think also um, at its core, I mean, it is a comedy and satire, but it's also definitely a horror. Mm. So I think that turns a lot of people off. I remember I was excited to see it, one, because I like horror films, but then also because I am deep in the cooking culture. So when I found out (laughs) what it was both about, um, I was excited. That being said, the person who I saw it with did not like it and then said, (laughs) I'm not allowed to choose movies for a month. (laughs) But I loved it. So it's fair to say it's sort of divisive. Yeah, I guess the love so. it or hate it kind of movie. Um, did the person you see it with, uh, were they a fan of like uh, cooking shows and foodie culture also? Or? They are. Um, so that's like always, I watch a lot of reality TV and that's what I love watching most. Um, so it's hard to find something to watch usually with my, my boyfriend and I when we're at home. But cooking shows are always the thing that we can both agree in. Yeah. So he watches a lot of that um, and then so do I. But I like horror films, and, and he does not. So I think the satire of the cooking culture that it presented was funny, and he did enjoy that, and I enjoyed that as well. But at its core, it's more of, a, I think, a horror film than really a cooking show. As a quick aside, I just want to say that I have a very hard time finding movies to watch with my wife because she hates the movies I like, and, and I um, hate the movies she likes. And so it is interesting how cooking shows unite us and bring us together because yeah. um, we both love the cooking shows and food culture. It's I the true neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. they are. <laughs> um, and they also allow us to have very opposing opinions about food and about the way things are done in a way that is like a fun debate, argumentative thing, rather than that movie was terrible. No, it was great. <laughs> but it's really interesting how that we can watch those together. And I think one of the things that about this movie that some people may object to is that if they really enjoy the food culture, seeing it being made fun of is kind of awkward to them. And I think I also felt like my wife didn't like it either. So that was interesting. Do you think it was because she felt that it was making fun? I mean, like, I don't know how deep into the food culture and cooking. I know you are, but I don't know how deep she's into it. But I think a lot of us who follow stuff and watch that stuff, like I know even when I was growing up and I would watch cooking shows on WTTW when Mm. I was a kid instead of watching like Saturday cartoons or anything. I mean, I never made any of those stuff. So I didn't Mm. take myself seriously as a chef or as a home cook or anything like that. It was just something I enjoyed to watch. So seeing the menu, I didn't feel, I think in one way, the menu kind of satires and critiques people who are really into food culture, but like more about going to the restaurants and Mm. having these like many course meals that you would get that you wouldn't experience that otherwise maybe, um, just like the average 
Joe Schmo or whatever. You yeah, know what I mean? Sure. So that was like the idea. Like it's like your ticket into this to try mm-hmm. something new and something that not everyone can experience. And so I don't do that as much as more just watching the shows and trying to cook something here or there, or watching competitions and stuff like that. Well, I have to say, as someone who always takes pictures of their food and posts on Instagram, uh, I love seeing the movie make fun of people like me. <laughs> <laughs> like, none of us take ourselves too seriously, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Would you say that the term, like, when someone says, for the gram, mm. was that coined taking pictures of food for the gram? Like, is that how that kind of got the start, or was it other things as well? Because I always thought it was from people saying, oh, wait, before we eat, let me take a picture of this food or this item. For the gram. <laughs> yeah, it could have been for anything. But yeah, food definitely. Every time I had a restaurant, especially like a bougie one, there's always someone. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm the only one here that doesn't regularly take pictures of my food. It is interesting in this movie how they did satirize some of the ways that people would like take pictures of their food or smell their food or the way that they plate their food. And, and all of that is so important. Like to me, it's really just about eating. And, and yeah. I really love eating, love cooking, but it's really about taste and i've never been a person that really is hugely into like presentation or fancy but it uh, is what it is uh, i like how in the menu like every single dish had to have a story there was one without getting too into it uh memory the plate memory mm-hmm. he starts with this like sob story that's like the kind of sob story you'd see on like a cooking show like all those contestants always are just like my grandmother taught me how to cook tacos for taco tuesday <laughs> <laughs> I know. That being said, do you feel that the menu reminded you of any cooking shows or movies or books that maybe you had read along those lines? As just a big fan of cooking shows in general, that's the thing that kind of uh, premise-wise struck me as the most comparisons to be made. Uh, So definitely like Chopped is my favorite. Uh, Then also you have Iron Chef. Uh, chef's table is that uh, oh yeah that's the one on netflix yeah i feel like that one's really it's more like documentary-esque that's like a competition show is that the one that follows specific chefs Mm -hmm. and kind of goes in the kitchen yeah Yeah. we were just watching uh the chef's table for pizza the other day and that was interesting because i think every cooking show or like some of those like internet like eater um Hmm. insider whatever um they often show the same few restaurants in New York or right. any of the ones that where they do the homemade mozzarella in Italy. Um, and oftentimes they show the same stuff where I think Chef's Table kind of highlights restaurants and chefs that you didn't know about as much. Oh, that's cool. I think the biggest target of satirization perhaps with the menu could be Gordon Ramsay because he easily has the biggest like following. There's a character, Tyler, in the menu. He is just obsessed with this guy and like always wants to get his like attention. Yeah. I was trying to actually answer who the chef in the menu reminded me of because he had a little bit of the anger like Gordon Ramsay gets, but not nearly as um, violently as Gordon Ramsay does. (laughs) But he did remind me of Gordon Ramsay is the way everybody goes, yes, chef, whenever he he asks a question. So they're all very almost militant. He probably based the main character off of a bunch of different celebrity chefs, but I think Gordon Ramsay might be the one that they want to come to your mind most because he has such a hot-headed mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. And because yeah. that is, I don't know, is it the personality that made him big or the food that made him big? I think that was the comment it was kind of making in the menu too, where he was like, I want it to get back to what cooking means and what cooking is versus whatever is going on with what it represents to people right now. And if you want to talk about how over-the-top cooking shows have become and they're, they're <laughs> making fun of it, how many different series has Gordon Ramsay been in in the last five years? 
I mean, he was in Hell's Kitchen. He was on Chopped. He was on Next Level Chef, Chopped Junior. He's on every show out there, it seems. I mean, you can't turn the channel without running into him. Mm -hmm. One thing I was wondering was, does his cooking and his expertise, has it been kind of dampened a little bit since he's been on those shows? And and I love watching him on the shows. I love MasterChef and MasterChef Junior. And I've watched Hell's Kitchen, which I can't handle because I feel like that's more about his personality versus <laughs> right. the cooking itself. But he does have a softer side. And, and you do see his expertise come out when he's talking to some of these home cooks. And mm. he does a master class series on YouTube um, where he'll take you through how to cook. And he knows what he's doing. And his food, one, looks delicious. I've also made one of the recipes, and it was delicious. <laughs> so I think he's legit. I think he's legitimate, too. And when he did the kids' show, I really enjoyed watching him because instead of tearing them down like he does for the adults, that he really builds them up in a way that's very caring. And I'm like, oh, that's really sweet. I wish he was more like that in his other shows. <laughs> I mean, there were moments where he took whatever they made and threw in the garbage, and he said, this is garbage. And then the kids would cry, but then he'd go over and hug them. And then he was like really nice <laughs> to them, too. So he was still gimmicky, but he was also a lot softer. And I like to imagine that's what he really is like. Right. Yeah, it's probably just a persona to keep people tuning in. Maybe the exact opposite of this whole sort of very American, like, cutthroat kitchen, hell's kitchen, cut cake wars. Why would you have to have a war about cake? <laughs> it's just food, people. I, I think that the Great British Baking Show is sort of like a corrective to all of that. Because at least when it started out, it was very almost defiantly gentle. All of the competitors seemed to hold each other in very high esteem throughout the show. You started to hold everyone in very high esteem. And so when they did inevitably have to cut people or, or people wouldn't go to the next round, you really felt a little heartbroken each time. Like you really got to know everyone. There was a lot more camaraderie than competitiveness. It was like a warm blanket of a show. And then they had to ruin it all. <laughs> <laughs> I still watch the more recent episodes of that too. Or I do agree. I think there was a camaraderie and they all wanted to help each other out mm. and they were all very kind and also very British. You know, yeah. it, was just, it was a very British mentality where they're like helping each other out and it's not about the judges, personalities, or anything like that. Right. Um, it seemed like most people were harshest on themselves. Like, the judging was always constructive. It wasn't just cruel for the sake of it. Yeah, most of the extreme criticism was self-directed. And people, I can't believe I screwed up the Victoria sandwich. That sort of thing. <laughs> One thing I liked about that show, too, is these American cooking shows, it's all about the twists and turns mm -hmm. and the watchability. I mean, it's definitely about watchability because they do bring in hosts. And I always wonder, like, why are those hosts there? Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, they must be distracting them during this competition. Because I do feel like they're, like, talking with the contestants more mm -hmm. and trying to become friends with them, which is great and yeah. really nice to see. But it's also, I would imagine, super distracting. Right. And the contestants are probably like, just get away from me. But there <laughs> is a lot of waiting and baking as well. Right. But one thing is nice about it is that... Um, they let you know what your challenge is going to be and they let you practice it ahead of time. So these people aren't coming in blind. Like obviously it's difficult because they're still working within the constraints of a competition, but they are told what to expect. Yeah. And I think that makes it less stressful in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Yeah, it's more educational. I, I will say that 
the earlier episodes are my favorites. When the show moved from BBC to Channel 4 and lost two of the hosts and one of the judges, I think that there was a precipitous drop in my enjoyment of it. I mean, I just loved <laughs> Mel and Sue as the hosts. It seemed like they tried to incorporate more of those American-style challenges where they would give you more to do in a shorter period of time, and it seemed less fair. But I was happy to see that the seasons of The Great British Bake Off that we have here on DVD at the library are the original seasons, (laughs) (laughs) not the ones on Netflix, which are... I won't say anything nice, so I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) I still like them. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to keep going back to Top Chef because that's my favorite show out of all the cooking shows. It's also one of the longest-running shows. And I think it does a really good job of balancing because it does have that camaraderie of the chefs. And in, in some ways, they are competing against each other, but they're really viewing like the judges as the people that they need to mm-hmm. go up against. And right. so there are a lot of instances where the chefs have to help each other out. They have to work on teams and do things like that. And granted, it is totally American and that it is totally competitive and there's mm-hmm. twists and turns every episode. But I think the other thing about that show is they focus as much on the personalities of each of the chefs as they do on the food. Mm. And so you come to know the people and the chefs and and why they cook the way they do and what their backgrounds are. By the end of the season, you have people that you love and people you despise. And, (laughs) and, you know, it's really a great sort of thing to talk about, like, which ones you liked. Yeah. I think there was a distinct turn, too, in Top Chef. Like, I mean, like, I watched it from the beginning, but I think in the beginning they were actually – looking for more personality and more high heads, or I don't know if maybe the cooking culture has changed mm. a little bit since more and more was revealed about some of these top chefs, not like, not, I mean like top chefs in general, just there was a lot of harassment on mm-hmm. the workforce and, and it was just a very male driven career. And I think things have changed a little bit. Um, and I think you can see that also in top chef. Yeah. I think they brought on more gentle top chefs, more diversity, And I think that's lent itself to more camaraderie. And and you do feel like they are all friends more so than like going head to head with each other. Yeah. I noticed a similar thing with, um, I I just finished watching this season of Tournament of Champions, which is sort of like the Guy Fieri hosted version of Top Chef and... I liked a lot of things about it. I wasn't fond of the fact that half of every episode seemed to be like training montages with like slow motion kitchen (laughs) shots and them looking tough with extreme lighting behind them. But I did appreciate how diverse all of the chefs uh, who are competing were and also the blind tasting sort of evened the playing field and allowed you know people from the eighth seed to move up to the first seed, that sort of thing, because it is done in sort of a... A bracket. A bracket system, yeah. I'm currently watching uh, on Netflix a show called Drink Masters. Okay. Same ballpark. They make yeah. uh, cocktails. Uh, pretty much all the contestants are like from extremely different, diverse backgrounds. One of them is uh, like Japanese, another one is like Indian. Mm-hmm. And to take the concept of like, let's say, a martini, and then like have like a Japanese bartender do like yuzu. Mm-hmm. Or uh, mixed with like uh, other Japanese like products, like yeah. Japanese whiskey, and then seeing the Indian man like make it with like pomegranate or something like that, mm-hmm. like just a completely different geographical take on a simple item, basically. Yeah. 
those tend to be my favorite types of food programming, where it does sort of go down into the history of food and the culture behind food. Um, like there have been a couple of really good uh, Netflix shows, uh, documentaries recently, an adaptation of the Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat book. Mm-hmm. It was a four-episode series, and each was about one of those flavors. And, and the host, uh, Samen Nosrat, would go to the places where these dishes originated and sort of learn about how they were originally prepared. And uh, the other show that I saw recently was High on the Hog, which is subtitled How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. And that's another one that I think started as a book and then was turned into a Netflix documentary. I haven't read either book, but the documentaries are very worthwhile because they give you a sense of the cultural importance of each food as well as how to actually make it and what it tastes like because a lot of times the process is given kind of precedence over the flavor because (laughs) technology has not progressed to the point where we can taste whatever is on the screen. At that point, I think (laughs) the Food Network will be perfected when you can push a button on your universal remote and have that taste in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) If only. Yeah, yeah, I think, I don't know how much you guys watch these shows on YouTube as Mm. well, which will oftentimes be shorter, but it'll be like little clips from butchers or almost like blurs the line between travel and cooking, where it's like, it's just, they work so much hand in hand where... Not only are you looking at how to make a recipe, but you're looking at where do they get these ingredients and where is it based in and and what's the history and travel behind that. And it's fascinating. And I love watching that in addition to the celebrity chefs and stuff like that. Have you guys been to any restaurants from any of these celebrity chefs or top chefs? I've been to Stephanie Zerbs, some um, Girl and the Goat, and one of her other restaurants. Um, I've also been to Rick Bayless's restaurant, uh, Frontera, uh, the one next door to Frontera. Oh. That I've been to Frontera too. But um, oh, you're thinking Duck Duck Goat. Duck Duck Goat is the okay. other one I've been to. Yes. And then I went to the Top Chef contestant Chewy's restaurant, which was a kind of a little hole in the wall one in Lakeview, one, uh, and I don't know if it's even still there, but that was fantastic as well. Those are the ones that I know off the top of my head, and I will say that they were some of the most memorable meals I've ever had. So I kind of get the sense of like what they're talking about when the judges are on the screen saying, you know, this is really a perfect meal. It's mm-hmm. really amazing when they do it just right. And out of all of them, I think Stephanie, is it Izzard or Izard? I think it's Izard. I think it is Izard. She had the best food out of all of those that mm-hmm. I've tried. Even better than Rick Bayless? It's hard to say better, but I would be... <laughs> If somebody were like to ask me, which would you rather go to right now? I would say, let's go to the girl and the goat. That was fantastic. I wouldn't turn down Frontera either. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the um, one he opened up in O'Hare. Is that Frontera too? Right. Okay, so is that, yeah. And that was very good. I also went to one, they weren't on Top Chef, but they're kind of celebrity chefs in Chicago. I went to Hai Su, um, which is like a Vietnamese restaurant in Pilsen. And that was very very good. The price was expensive, and I think especially expensive for Vietnamese food, because I don't think usually it's that expensive to make, but um, it was phenomenal. And I've been to Little Goat Diner mm. by Stephanie Izard, and that was fantastic as well. I haven't been to a lot of the Top Chef restaurants since I'm, I think I mentioned I'm more of a watcher mm. opposed to a foodie, I would say. <laughs> but of the stuff I've tried from them, It's been great, Um, and I've made recipes and stuff like that, but we can talk about that later. (laughs) (laughs) 
I haven't been to many places in Chicago or the area that are in this kind of celebrity chef, unless you count Paradise Pup here in Des Plaines, uh, which was uh, featured on Diners, Divins, and Drives. I've and, been there. And it's fantastic that Merck's cheddar, I'll, I'd like <laughs> just a milkshake cup full of that cheddar. <laughs> My doctor says I shouldn't do that, but... <laughs> Um, but I, I did, when I went to New York City several years ago, I did go to 11 Madison Park, which is sort of like the platonic ideal of that like three-hour meal where you get 10 incredibly presented plates, each with a tiny, tiny amount of food with incredible, sophisticated flavor. You know, it's easily the most I've ever paid for any meal in my life. And when I was eating it, I, I felt emotions I've never felt before or since. <laughs> Which are basically just, I'm enjoying this so much, and I'm going to miss it so much when it goes away in like five seconds when I finish it. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like a melancholy. It's like you're trying to remember something that you know is very fleeting. You know, it, it makes for sort of a, a bittersweet, you know, not the flavor bitter or the flavor sweet, but it makes for, you know, a sort of emotionally charged dining experience. And, you know, I would say my, my wheelhouse is more the comfort food. Like, I really miss hot dogs in Chicago. <laughs> but, you know, it was definitely a one-of-a-kind experience, and I'm glad that I had it. Do you think it's worth it? At least once in your life, it, I would say that it is worth it, just to sort of know what that experience is like. I don't make enough money to make a habit out of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think some people, maybe an argument they would make against it is that you're spending all this money to eat something so it's gone right but what foodies and and what this cooking culture and and like celebrity chef culture is saying is it's, it's all about the experience it's all about the ambiance yeah you get so much more from it like for example i have a friend whose boyfriend um says they spend too much money going out and eating food mm. and and trying new wines or cocktails and he said they had to save the money. They had to stop doing that. But then um, my friend says all they ever want is to actually continue to do it. They want to travel and they want to go to these fancy restaurants and they want to try the food there. And they don't want to stop doing that because they mm. think it's all about the experience. And I agree with that. I think there is a lot to it. And I would say it's worth it. I agree with you at least once in your life. I think that there's a scene in the menu that is meant to be funny, but is really true. And that's when he's talking about the chef comes out and says, I don't want you to eat this food. I want you to experience this food. <laughs> and when you're one of these chefs, I think I tend to view them as an artist. And I think that what they're doing is creating art. Mm. And so you're experiencing their art in a way that is very personal. You don't experience art at the Art Institute in the same way that you experience a fine chef's food. You get to taste it. You get to smell it. You get to see it. So it's different. But I think it's one of those things where... When it's a special occasion and you're not doing it more than once a year or a couple of years, it becomes something memorable and it becomes something you carry with you. And I think that makes it special. I wouldn't want to go to one of these restaurants every week or every month, but I think as a special occasion, it's really a special way to appreciate life and what we take in as food and what we um, get to experience as taste and things like that. And I just want to say that some of those food items really are works of art. Yeah. Uh, that's why uh, plating is always like a criteria in like food shows. Yeah, there's been like a meme online about like how restaurants don't serve food on plates anymore. It always has to be on like some weird other surface. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs>
well, there's a whole art to like dinner party planning and. Okay. I'm in a sci-fi, which I probably mentioned in other podcasts. I'm, I love my sci-fi book club, so I've probably mentioned it many times. But um, I'm in a sci-fi book club where whoever chooses the book hosts it. And we've gotten to the point where we're hosting a small dinner party. So we want our dinner table to look fantastic. Like, it is about the plating. It is about, you know, matching plates. Because I never had matching plates and matching silverware and, you know, those kinds of things. So it is all about that now when you're trying to impress and cooking and cooking culture is all about impressing i mean also Mm -hmm. the taste but the menu can argue it's about what's being presented to you more so Mm -hmm. are any of you guys cooks or would you consider yourself i don't know if you want to reveal this on the podcast but (laughs) david is a vegan and so you've been kind of dabbing dabbling more in vegan cooking yes i have um before i was vegan i did try to replicate the top chef when they did the chocolate chip cookie challenge, I tried to replicate the winning recipe with that. And I either did something wrong or it wasn't the best cookie I've ever had. It was good, but it was not as good as like the New York Times cookie. But yeah, I mean, I do try to replicate other dishes and copy some of them in different ways. I've often tried to uh, make the Lou Malnati's pizza crust to make my own pizzas at home <laughs> and things like that too. That, How did um, it turn out? It's very difficult and very scientific, but I've, I've gotten pretty good at it. it. takes a lot of time. One chef that I love, I'm a big Ina Garden fan, the Barefoot yeah. Contessa. Yeah. Um, and I own her Cooking Essentials book, which I got from our book sale here. And we, we own a bunch of books that you can check out from her. But she's very calculated and scientific with the way she approaches recipes. And that's because... Since she started off as a celebrity chef or like cooking on TV, and also she has a scientific background because she used to work for the government, um, she tells you exactly how much to use and to follow that. Like some chefs will be like, oh, a pinch of salt here. And she does not do that. She mm-hmm. says, this is exactly the amount you should be using. And, and, and I loved that for starting off. Yeah. But it's also funny because she will say things like, use good olive oil or, or use this really <laughs> fancy ingredient. But then she'll also say store-bought is fine. If you can't get, there's like a bunch of memes out there where it's like, if you can't get the freshest milk from the youngest, most supple cow, like <laughs> store-bought is fine. <laughs> it's interesting you're talking about the science of cooking because I was just talking about the art of cooking. And those are two fields that I think tend to sort of be separate from each other. And yet it's very scientific. And this gives me a good opportunity to pump the book Lessons in Chemistry, which is a fiction novel that I just read. And we're doing it as a book discussion over the summer. And it's about a woman in the 60s who's a scientist. And her career is not going well as a scientist because she's a woman in the 60s and they're treated poorly. And so she's offered a job to start a TV cooking show, which becomes a huge thing. And her whole thing about her cooking show was the science of cooking. And it is really interesting how scientific it really is and and how much you need to pay attention to amounts of ingredients and chemical reactions and things like that, too, which is really great. Well, even some of the top chefs will use, like there's this one in the most recent, which usually there's a few of the top chefs who bring in more scientific elements or like acids or there's one who uses agar agar which i don't even know what that is but <laughs> they use it in everything and it, it's one of those kind of biology elements and scientific elements that they're bringing into cooking i believe that's a gelling thing like it makes it mm. but um yeah it is interesting buddha who's one of the recent winners was very i mean they talk about molecular gastronomy is kind of like the scientific 
making all the weird foams and things like that. <laughs> I don't know if I'd like those as much as I would like something more solid, but that's interesting how that has become a part of it. Do you cook, Charlie? I will say I follow recipes. I don't cook. I follow recipes because I, I don't trust myself to, you know, just eyeball it. And so my favorite recipes tend to be from America's Test Kitchen because they are very... Um, tested. Very tested. Yeah, they will do a blind taste between four different sugars and say, that's the one that you should have. And I say, <laughs> thank you, America's Test Kitchen, because... I do love those cookbooks. Yeah, I, I, it's not celebrity cooking because I think part of it is that you know, anyone can do it, but I appreciate how clear and concise they are with the rules that they set out. They had a show on WTTW yeah, yeah. on PBS, though. Yeah. yeah, that and Cook's Kitchen. I can't really tell the difference between Cook's Kitchen and America's Test Kitchen, because it seems to be the same cast, but those are both definitely worth watching. Well, I, I try to follow the directions, and everything comes out bad whenever I make food. <laughs> <laughs> My friends and I, we used to have, um, basically, we were like family dinners. I forget what we called it. It was like a cooking club where we would pick a theme, and then each person would cook a recipe that fit in that theme. And I had a friend who would always do a test run before. Mm. So she would always say, okay, I picked out my recipe, but I have to make it before so that it doesn't turn out complete and utter garbage. <laughs> I haven't tried making anything from like a celebrity chef, but in the same like ballpark as that uh there's a lot of like uh, cooking youtube uh channels that i watch the big one i watch is this thing called binging with babish where he uh recreates famous food items from uh tvs and movies there's been a few where i attempt and they're kind of similar uh his most popular youtube video easily one of them is the krabby patty from spongebob <laughs> <laughs> i tried remaking that as well as uh another burger the big kahuna burger from uh, Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> films. Yeah, um, Nothing's better than a burger, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it turn out? I actually really liked the big kahuna burger. It had like a slice of pineapple, and it kind of had like the Hawaiian elements to it. Yeah, Nice. Speaking of future chefs, um, there was an article in the New York Times cooking section, which this also gives me an opportunity to pump our New York Times subscription through the library, which people can access from home. We have access to both the regular New York Times and cooking, and they have a lot of recipes on there. Um, there's just a feature about a YouTube chef, a Mexican grandmother, that I really enjoyed watching. Um, when I read the article, I went and watched a bunch of them, and it's basically her in her little remote village where she cooks the old school way, and she kind of feels like you know everybody's grandmother. And it's in Spanish, but with subtitles. And her channel is called De Mi Rancho de Cochina, I believe. Pardon my terrible accent, but um, means like from the ranch to the kitchen. And it's really a fantastic YouTube channel for kind of old-fashioned recipes. Oh, you're, you're talking about kind of the uh, geographical mm. aspect of, of cooking. Yeah. Uh, there's actually another one I, I watched called Tasting History, okay. which is... Uh, the chef remakes food items from uh, cookbooks, like using the directions as they were actually written, mm -hmm. like Old English or something. Okay. Those cookbooks from like the 16th century are like the most unscientific things ever. <laughs> yeah. Just like a handful of salt. <laughs> My son also watches a lot of YouTube cooking channels. Um, he's 16 and he likes to correct a lot of the things I do, but he watches a lot of comparison chef channels where they like try to make a burger and they make it three different ways or things like that. And he's learned a lot through those. It's really interesting how kind of educational those have been and 
how it's really taken over. Yeah, they're super educational. Yeah. Does he use a lot of those terms that you like, deconstructed sandwich? And- <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't. But he does say things to me like, your tacos are under-seasoned or things like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, you don't normally talk like that, but he's learned, so it's interesting. I was watching Top Chef Last Chance Kitchen because David was talking to me about it, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. So I was watching it, and one of the chefs on there who's, I think, from France or from somewhere else around the world, he commented on how Americans really like salt. You know, they're like, oh, I have to adjust my cooking for all these different worldly palates. And that's something that you definitely have to do, like in considering seasonings and how you actually present it to other people who aren't used to these different kinds of stuff. It's interesting how this sort of celebrity chef culture has sort of maybe trickled down so that amateur bakers do have some of the same celebrity culture uh, fixture. Like, so uh, with social media like YouTube channels and Facebook, I'm sure there's lots of cooking on TikTok and Instagram. And it sort of allows regular folks who have talent and some charisma to become the next cooking chef. And so, yeah, I, I do like a lot of the shows where they try to find the next one. One of the current shows is Next Level Chef, which is yeah. a Gordon Ramsay show. And that in that one, they pit three different groups of chefs against each other within teams. And so there's restaurant chefs, home cooks, and then there's social media chefs. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see, you know, how good some of the home cooks and how some of the social media chefs are able to stand up against the professional. Yeah. Well, one of the things is um, MasterChef is supposed to be finding the next big home cook, and then they give them a cookbook deal. Was it Christina Yang? Um, she was a blind chef. She won one of the seasons of MasterChef, and she was actually a guest judge on Top Chef, which is notorious for being these people who have worked in restaurants their whole life. Mm. And and she was a home cook who got her start that way yeah. and happened to win MasterChef and then she was a judge to all of these sous chefs and huge deal chefs from around the world. So there is a lot of crossover and it's totally possible where the lines are blurred. Yeah. Well, I think going back to my comment before about it being an art and there's a lot of artists that go through years and years of training to become great artists. And then there's lots of artists who are just natural artists. And I think in any art, whether that be painting or music, there's, people that go through it traditionally and then there's people that are self-taught and so this is not all that different and then of course there are the people with no aptitude towards cooking whatsoever and they've got a show (laughs) of their own the the wonderful netflix show nailed it which takes specially selected home bakers who are not good at what they do and gives them a lot of curveballs and the results are usually Fairly disastrous. <laughs> Wasn't there a show for a little while there, like the worst chef in America? Yes, or that yeah, was another yes, one. Yes. I think that was a Food Network. That was very gimmicky. Yeah. That was. And that was more about the judges. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, like, how do you even decide that? Because, like, you're going to go on a food show, but the criteria is you have to be bad. Like, right. you can lie about being bad. <laughs> it's tr- Well, that is true. Well, the premise of that show was, because I think the judges were Bobby Flay and Anne... My gosh, what's her last name? But she's a great chef, too, on the Food Network. And Burrell, yes. And so what it was is they were taking the worst chefs and then teaching them skills. So it was like from worst chef, they became one of the best chefs. But you're right, they could have totally lied. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it even more. Gotta that ring promise lends itself more to lying and then just beating everyone. 
And actually, back to Next Level Chef, one of the things that they win is a year of training under the oh, uh, Gordon Ramsay or um, uh, Richard Blaze and Naisha Arrington. That's what they're all sort of trying to win is like this apprenticeship. I mean, and that's a huge deal because ultimately, even though, I mean, I don't know if their credibility is enhanced or taken away from them being so big on the TV or in social media or on, on these books, but they're good teachers. And that's the reason I think they become famous in a lot of ways is yeah. they teach people and that's a huge gift for them. It also seems like a lot of these celebrity chefs have really sort of stepped up in the COVID era when all the restaurants shut down. I've heard a lot of stories about famous restaurateurs and TV hosts, like specifically Guy Fieri, who a lot of people are down on. And I don't understand why. He is a genuine force for good in this universe. You know, you have to have a certain tolerance for the dynamite and the flavor town and (laughs) (laughs) muscle cars. You know, he's got his own personality, but he also definitely seems to be helping out the restaurant industry at a time of need and, you know, raising the awareness of a lot of these, you know, mom and pop restaurants that may not find their audience otherwise. And people do seek out those restaurants. I know people like just... I've had people come to the desk saying, can you look up where the nearest diners, fivers, and dives restaurants are? I mean, people ask for those. Um, So he has created a culture that really has gotten people interested. And so that's great. No, that's definitely why I watch a lot of these uh, food shows. Uh, In fact, I believe there's an Arlington Heights restaurant, Scratchboard Kitchen. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of, like, uh, bougie foods. Like, uh, I remember I had some uh, ancient grain salad, and I couldn't even tell you, like, what was on the plate, but it tasted amazing. (laughs) But uh, the the, the way I I found out about that place is that the owner or one of the chefs uh, was on Chopped, and I think she won, actually. It's kind of crazy. Like, any time like Guy Fieri show any of those food contest shows uh, if I hear like displaying Charlie's and Heights I'm like we're going right now <laughs> to, to wherever yeah. well Check Please which used to be on WTTW I don't know if it's still going on but that was such a good way of highlighting oh. local restaurants in the Chicago and Chicago suburban area that's how I found out about Ethiopian Diamond over in uh, like Rogers Park and there's just so much you can learn from just some of those local TV shows like that I love Ethiopian Diamond. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I like that one better than Demera, but Demera is good too. Mm-hmm. There's this another um, Ethiopian hole in the wall not too far from either of those places that I can't remember the name of, but it was maybe the best Ethiopian food I've ever had. Uh, if restaurants were too expensive, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we do offer quite a lot of cookbooks at the library. In fact, on the fourth floor, one of our permanent displays pretty much is a cookbook shelf. I brought a few. Anyone else? I didn't bring any in person because this is on audio and nobody will see them. But I did want to mention that my favorite cookbook author is Molly Katzen, who's the author of the Moosewood Cookbook, which I've cooked many things out of. My two favorite things that I make very frequently is something called Mexican home fries, which is basically like a fried potato dish that is just unbelievably delicious. And she also does a mint chocolate chip cookie that I make every year around Christmas time that people rave about too. Nice, nice. Um, I've done a few out, mainly Ina Garden, but I also got this uh, book from um, Allison Roman. She was like New York Times sweetheart for a while, and then I think there was some controversy. But I got her book uh, called Nothing Fancy from the library here, and I've also made one of her recipes before, which is one of my old-time favorite recipes now. Um, it's a turmeric 
chickpea soup with some um, collard greens, and it's amazing. I initially made it and put it on top of rice, but I think it's even better by itself and uses coconut milk. It's very Thai-inspired, and it's so good. Quickly going back to uh, binging with Babish, I, I grabbed his cookbook. I, this is what I use. In, in addition to his uh, YouTube videos, that's what I used to cook some of the burgers I made. <laughs> One thing I want to mention about this book is that uh, while pretty much uh, it's like a real cookbook, uh, you would want to make and eat everything in it because his whole premise is that he makes uh, famous food items from uh, movies and TV shows. Uh, he'll occasionally do like a joke episode. Mm. There's this one uh show called the regular show it's a cartoon on uh, cartoon network and i guess in that they eat something called the every meat burrito uh <laughs> so he made a burrito using as many different types of meat as he could find yeah uh another one that i found really funny that's actually in this book right now in the movie elf will ferrell's character buddy makes this particular pasta salad uh, with but, like the maple syrup yes yes uh <laughs> It's like spaghetti with like marshmallows, maple syrup, chocolate, basically stuff that doesn't go on spaghetti. And uh, he features it in this book, and then he says, don't actually make this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I was going to ask, a lot of the foods that are in TV shows and movies, the food that's actually on camera is not anywhere near what's being described. Like famously, a lot of times when there's an ice cream cone on a TV show, it's just a cone of mashed potatoes because it'll melt under the the stage lighting. Yeah, I think there are books that I think we even have on the fourth floor as well where it's just the art of staging food and Mm. some of the stuff they have to do to make something look good on a plate is disgusting. (laughs) 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 Like they're like, don't eat this food. Just do this. It'll look good. And then you can actually eat the recipe later. (laughs) One other cookbook I brought, uh, which uh, wasn't actually in the uh, cookbook section. It was in the graphic novel section. And it's because it's a comic book called uh, Let's Make Ramen. When you're in the library, come check out uh, Let's Make Ramen. It's an actual comic book uh, that teaches you how to cook, which I love that. Because sometimes when I get a cookbook and it's just text and maybe like the picture, uh, it's good to actually have like diagrams that shows you how to prepare it correctly. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people like cooking shows in general, too, or the cooking videos is that you're watching someone make it, so Mm. the chance that you're going to mess it up is not as big as it would have been otherwise. Cooking has become so ubiquitous that it's finding its way into so many other genres now. Mm. I mean, it's in fiction novels. You can read, you know, mystery books with recipes in them and things like that. You mentioned on the last episode that Crying in H Mart can almost be read as a cookbook. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Uh, I said that almost jokingly. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, a lot of the uh, book is dedicated to various Korean food in that, yeah. Yeah. There's like YA books with the fire on high. That's a fiction high school. It's in our high school collection. But there are recipes actually in there, and that's Mm. similar to like Water with Chocolate, where they do include the recipes to the dishes that they describe in the book as well. That's one of my favorite books, and I think we're going to do that as a Spanish-language book club book. You know, like Joanne Fluke does a whole series of mysteries with and Diane Mott-Davidson where they have like recipes for cakes and sweets, and people have come into the library saying, I made this recipe out of it. During the pandemic, we briefly did a blog series where we took recipes that were mentioned or like dishes that were mentioned in some of our favorite books and tried recreating it. 
I don't know. I wonder if one of the blogs covered a recipe from like water for chocolate. I did one from with the fire on high. I did. I made a tem black, which actually doesn't require any cooking. It's it's more just mixing. It's like a pudding. Mm. <laughs> but um, does someone do one from like James the Giant Peach? They did one from uh, Harry Potter. What else did we? There's a, there's a lot you could do from Harry Potter. <laughs> there was. Yeah. I, I think someone did the um, pumpkin pasties. Oh, okay. But there's a lot that you can do from a lot of different books. Because I think food is involved in, like David said, so many different genres right. and so uh, many different types of media. I've, I've noticed that in a lot of these uh, book club books, uh, in the final pages, there's like how to make this recipe feature in the book. And like you make it for like your book club when you go and discuss it. Yeah. We actually have something called Foodies Unite where um, you can get your item that they highlight on the fourth floor. But I think it's once a month or once every other month. But what they do is they pick an item and then people check out cookbooks and make a dish using that item. So they've done coconut milk, they've done chickpeas, they've done nutmeg, like a bunch of different stuff. I hate nutmeg. <laughs> <laughs> nutmeg and cloves, I cannot stand. I think they've done cloves. Some might consider it. <laughs> but you guys should uh, come and check out any of these items that we've mentioned. Most of the celebrity chefs do have cookbooks here. Gordon Ramsay, Ina Garden, uh, Andrew Ray is the oh, yes. the author of Binging with Babish. Yeah. yeah, there's. I think there's a Rick Bayless cookbook here. Mm-hmm. A lot of my favorite Great British Bake Off bakers have their own cookbooks now. Nadia and Ed Kimber and all these delightfully British folks. David <laughs> Chang, Martin Yan. The list goes on. So oh, Martin on, Yan, on. you're bringing me back to my oh, early yeah. WTTW, <laughs> five years old, sitting on my grandparents' floor watching Yan Can Cook. <laughs> we also One have of many favorites. of these series on video to watch on DVD, so if you wanted to check out old seasons of Top Shop or some of the other shows, we have some of them. Um, circling back to the movie, which we talked about, the menu, are there other um, feature films that, that you guys wanted to mention that are related to cooking? Because I had a couple I wanted to mention. We already mentioned like Water for Chocolate, which was made into a movie. It was a great movie and a great book. Big Night was another one that was famous back 20, 30 years ago that I thought was a fantastic movie when I saw it. I don't really remember it, but that was a long time ago. I wanted to mention with Big Night, uh, when I was in high school, we did a film study class. And uh, for like a week or so, the topic was food featured in film. Basically, what we watched Big Night in class, but we also had to go out and discover a movie related to this topic. There's surprisingly not, like not a whole lot, so it made like really like uh, searching for it a fun task to do. But yeah, I remember liking Big Night a lot. Um, it's about like two brothers trying to keep a Italian restaurant afloat. Yeah, right. Um, if you like the dark comedy aspect of uh, the menu, you might like Eating Raul which is a cult classic, and I don't know how well it will stand up to the test of time, but that was from the probably 80s, and that was funny and weird. Um, are there other food films that you guys want to mention? Or? I oddly have not seen a lot of food films. All I can think of is Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. Definitely counts. Yeah, because I never saw a chef either, even though I know that got good reviews. I think I'm more into it for the recipe breakdown than maybe the story. I mean, even though I love hearing the story behind it, but mainly if it just involves travel. Yeah. Uh, there's one uh, Japanese movie from, I think, the 80s or 90s. Uh, it's called Tempopo. 
I believe it's featured on the Criterion Collection, but it, the genre, when you look it up, it, it labels itself as a ramen western as opposed to a spaghetti western. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, if you have an appetite for any of this, uh, whether it's books, movies, graphic novels, we've got it here at the library. So come on up and have a plate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, We will see you next time on Minor Rex. Bye-bye.